Well, good. Hey, I'm excited to see you here this morning. I hope that you've got your Bibles, whether you've got a hard copy like me or you need to actually turn it on like an electronic Bible, whatever you need to do. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, primarily for the the morning. Uh, We'll touch uh, towards the end in James chapter 5, but primarily we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We've spent this entire month talking about prayer and the idea of warriors wanted. There's this application, this idea that we need people. Christianity needs people. Our community, our world needs Christ followers to be actively engaged in the ministry of prayer. And so to do that, we can't do um, hoping, we can't sit around hoping that someone else does it. I remember going through a kind of a basic um, first, first aid uh, class once. And um, what they said is when, it, when a tragedy will happen, when an accident happens, let's say that someone is, is tragically struck by a car and, and maybe in a shopping mall parking lot and everybody runs out and we're standing in a circle and a couple of people kind of take the lead and they're bent down and they're, they're just checking the situation and seeing if, if the person's okay and everybody else is kind of standing around and then you've got you know, a couple of morons that are filming it with their phone and what happens is they, they, never, they always say, don't say someone needs to call an ambulance. Because everybody is in agreement that someone needs to call an ambulance. They said, what you need to do is turn and point someone out and say, you, Ray, you call an ambulance. And it puts, puts it on him. Now, he has the responsibility. He has the R, if you will, of calling an ambulance. And now it's not just this idea that, yes, we do need to call an ambulance because this person's injured. Now, Ray's in charge of that, and Ray has to make it happen. Prayer's that way. We can't just hope that someone will engage in the area of prayer. Uh, if you saw the video that we posted on Facebook Live, and listen, I mean, not Facebook Live, but we've, we've been doing these videos for a couple of months now, sending them out on Saturdays, um, not trying to gain attention for our church or really even gain attention for our community. We are wanting our people, you, you and I, the families that make up our church, to engage in prayer On Saturdays, whether you're a single adult or a senior adult, whether you are newly married or you have a house full of kids, that sometime on Saturday, maybe even gathering with people in your Sunday school class, that you will pray through the needs that we're sharing on Saturday for Sunday. Why? Because we either believe that prayer works or we don't. And all too often we treat it like it's a spare tire. We only pull it out when we really need to. And it's meant to be much more than a parachute or a spare tire. It, it, is, it is the oxygen in the lungs of every Christ follower, or it should be. But let's just point it out. Prayer, is, it can be awkward at times. It's not meant to be. Certainly, the Bible doesn't teach us that it should be. But oftentimes, we will treat prayer the same way that you treat making eye contact with a homeless person on an off-ramp. If you don't make eye contact with that person, you don't have to give them anything. And so when it comes time to pray, never do people, are they more ready to bow their heads than when they know someone's about to be called on to pray. We're so nervous. We're so, we get so wound up to think that someone's going to ask me to pray in public. And I don't have the right words. I'm not spiritual enough. Hey, everybody look around the room really good right now. Just kind of, just turn your head. Nobody sitting around you is spiritual enough. 
the guy with the microphone off of his bald head right now is not spiritual enough. The idea of grace and a loving God is that God calls the unspiritual and through him we are made righteous. And that he allows us to come into his presence and he doesn't just allow us to begrudgingly. It's not like the father sitting on the throne and saying, well, if you have to. He's saying, come on. Let's meet. Let's talk. There's so much I want to say to you, and I want to hear from your heart. I know what's on your heart. I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going through. But as a loving father, tell me anyway. But prayer can be awkward. I I may have shared this with some of you before, but I love to hear new Christians pray. There's just, there's a rawness to it. And they haven't had the opportunity to kind of learn the lingo yet. There's just a desperation in the prayer of someone who's new in Christ. Um, Years ago, we were at um, Rebecca's grandparents' house for Thanksgiving. And one of Rebecca's relatives brought a friend for Thanksgiving. And so it came time for the meal, and everybody's standing there. And you got to know that Rebecca's grandmother is one of the most loving people in the world. And if you don't like to be hugged, you would not like her. She's a hugger. Anybody have a hard time with huggers? Like, you know, the, it's the old Patrick Swayze thing. This is my dance space. This is your dance space. Huggers get in your dance space, don't they? Well, she gets in your dance space. Well, at any rate, this friend that Rebecca's relative brought to Thanksgiving did not know Christ was not living for Jesus. But Rebecca's grandmother assumes that everybody that's in her family or associated with her family knows Christ. So it came time to hold hands and we're going to pray. His name was Scott. Who do you think grandma asked to pray for Thanksgiving? (laughs) It was a disaster. And it was beautiful all at the same time. He couldn't say no I guess he could have, but that would have made it worse. And so he, he didn't know any lingo. He didn't know the right things to say. He's just kind of stating the obvious, like, the food looks good. And we're all here and excited. You know, it, just, it, was just this, it was just this train wreck. And I'm sitting there going, oh, just let this plane fly around for a little while. Because... Prayer's not meant to be that way. And the way that you get good at praying is by praying. And I don't, when I say good, I don't mean that you learn uh, philosophical terms or theological concepts that you just kind of utter out. We, we're not to be the people, and this Matthew chapter 6 passage speaks to this, we're not to be the people that, that learn these phrases and, and, and shout them out so that people think we're more spiritual. And I have done this, and I bet that some of you less spiritual like me have done this as well. You'll hear people say something, and you'll think, i got to remember that next time I pray. You laugh because you're guilty. We've all done it. That's not what I mean by getting good at prayer. What I mean is that where it's not laborious to talk to the Father. That it's not what you, you, you finally end up doing. It's what you start off doing. Before I do anything else, I'm going to spend this time in prayer. Before I worry, before I'm anxious, before I Facebook post, before I text somebody, before I cry, 
I'm going to seek the Father on this. Because he's either sovereign and in control or he's not. And I want my life, and I hope that you want your life to to reflect the fact that by faith we can trust that the Father is in control. I don't know why, but sometimes people feel like they have to change their voice when they pray. The extra spiritual people. You'll get a hillbilly that usually speaks like, how, 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 how. And then all of a sudden, he's the Scottish theologian. Ah, grandfather. You're like, who is that? (laughs) Prayer's not a trance that we slip into and slip back out of. It's okay to just use your normal talking voice. God is not impressed by your mastery of, of the English dialect or your lack thereof. You've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound not the trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you in secret. Verse 5 says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I say that they have received their reward. Skip down to verse 9. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now some of you have learned the the last part of that. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory and forever and ever. Amen. Well, you think, well, why is, maybe it's in your passage, maybe it's not. Why is it in there? Well, when you look at the earliest transcripts and manuscripts, you see that in some places it is there, and in some places it's not there. And so some of the more modern translations have opted to, to take it out because it's not found in the totality of the original manuscripts. But there's nothing wrong with praying that. It's just may or may not be biblical text. So we're not going to really focus on that today, but I didn't want you sitting there the rest of the morning going, wait a minute, I learned, where's those last couple of words? Where's that last couple of phrases? The first thing we see is that prayer builds a relationship when you look at our Father. Verse 9 starts off, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, Jesus kicks open the door to intimacy with God. You need to know in the Old Testament, it only refers to God as the Father 14 times. And an Israelite in the Old Testament is never quoted as directly talking to God as Father. 
The writers of the text would, would oftentimes leave the name blank or they would refer to the most holy or the most high. Perhaps you've heard the name for, for Jesus, it would be Yahweh, the, the Father. And, and, and what would happen is they would even leave letters out so to give reverence. And so for Jesus here and on the Sermon on the Mount to, to invite the disciples and not just the disciples, we, sometimes I have this picture, maybe you have this picture of just these 12 merry men walking around with Jesus all the time. You need to know that oftentimes Jesus and the disciples would have to withdraw to different places because this crowd was coming and the disciples wanted so badly for Jesus to establish his kingdom right here and right now because they'd never seen anything like what was happening. And Jesus said, it's just not time. But Jesus opens the door to intimate conversation with the Father. We see that it, it builds this relationship. Even pagans didn't pray this way. There was a respect for the Father that, that superseded anything else. As Creator God, there was a respect in the Old and the New Testament. And so we've heard this almost all of our lives. But this teaching would have been revolutionary for the early church. To think that now I can refer to him as Abba, which is also translated as Daddy. That this intimate relationship, that prayer builds with our Father. Second thing we see in this passage is that prayer creates alignment. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, it's not my kingdom, my will. It's not even your kingdom, my will. Both of them are his. It's his kingdom and it's his will. And we don't like to admit this. We don't like to say this. But more times than not, we pray for our will and ask God to bless it. Father, these are the things I want these are the things I think I need, and I need you to make this happen. There is an intimate relationship with the Father, but don't ever get the thought crossed up that we can treat God like a short-order cook at the Waffle House. We don't simply tell him what we want. It's his kingdom, and it's his will. And when we pray those words, when we pray in that manner, when we pray these concepts, it is a reaffirmation not only to the Father that we see him at that way, but is it a testimony to us. It is a reminder to us that we are to revere the Father, that we are participants, welcome participants, that we are to clay on the potter's will, and the clay doesn't get to dictate what he's going to be. He doesn't get to say, I'm going to be a bowl, or I'm going to be a pitcher, or I'm going to be a vase. The potter makes the clay. And if we are clay on the wheel, we get no voice in it. God didn't save me and you, you and I, for our opinions. He saved us for our obedience. My friend Jimmy Scroggins says that Christians are afraid that prayer doesn't work, and non-Christians are afraid it does. Isn't that interesting the way that our enemy has convoluted our ideas of prayer? That even for Christ followers, even for the most dedicated of us all, oftentimes it is the last thing we do because we're just not sure that God's going to be in what we're talking to him about. 
Christians are afraid prayer doesn't work, and non-Christians are afraid that it does. Non-Christians are worried about their great-grandmother or their neighbor or their friend that are praying for them. Even non-Christians, there's a sense and awe of who God is and what he's able to do. And in the back of their mind, some of them feel like they're running from a God who's running after them. Hey, you know what? God's big enough and strong enough and fast enough and eternal enough that if he wanted to catch up with you and have his way with you, he could have and would have by now. Our God is pursuing you, but it's not to judge you. Our God is pursuing you to save you. To save me from myself and to save you from yourself. I bring this idea up a good bit, but I just think we need to think about it at times. Do you remember what it was like to be lost and far from God? Do you remember the desperation? Do you remember the hopelessness? Do you remember the fear and the anxiety? Do you, do you remember knowing that you didn't know what was happening? And as a Christ follower, you might not still know what's happening, but you know the one who knows. And I know that even the way that I say that, it sounds weak. It's short-sighted. And my words fall short of trying to accurately describe who God is and what he's done in my life. And it sounds like that Christians use Jesus and Christianity as a crutch. But see, you only need a crutch when you're sick. You need a casket when you're dead. And the Bible tells us that we were dead. We were lost. We were far from God and enemies of God. And when you're dead, you don't need a crutch. You need life. third thing we see is that prayer demonstrates dependence. Prayer demonstrates dependence. It says, give us this day our daily bread. It's what we need daily. Obviously, this is not a a call for prayer. I mean, a call for bread, not for actual food. But the very act of prayer is an act of faith. It demonstrates dependence when we're calling on the Father. When we are praying, we're saying, Father, I can't do what I'm asking you to do, but you can. I've learned more about the love of God being a parent than I ever did in any class in seminary. And I remember my parents telling me when I was a kid, you won't know how much we love you until you have your own kids. And as soon as I had my kids, I remember thinking, there's no way my parents love me this much. Probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to. When, um, when we had passes to Disney a couple of years ago, every time we would go to Hollywood Studios, our, our youngest son, Kason, who was three at the time, maybe four, who's three, uh, he wanted to ride the rock and roller coaster. And it's a fast ride, and it does corkscrews and backflips, and it does some incredible things. And if you've ever ridden it before, you know it's, it's, it's probably the best ride in the park. And rivals the other four parks, too. It's just a great, great ride. And he would want to go and measure himself. 
And he would stand under the thing and he would be too short. I mean, like that. Just a long shot. We'd go the next month. He'd want to measure again. I guess it's hard to tell a three-year-old that you don't grow seven inches in a month, right? (laughs) But he would go every time. He would stand under it and we'd say, buddy, I'm sorry. And we try to soften his heart up as, as we were walking up to the ride to say, hey, buddy, you, you've grown, but you're not going to be tall enough. He's like, I want to measure. And say, okay, okay. So he'd go, that much. And he'd just be so despondent. I guess he just, in his little heart, just the naivety of it all, he, he just, he wanted to, to be tall enough. He thought somehow he was going to make it this time. Well, it was two months before our passes were going to be up. And... Um, we knew that we probably were only going to go one more time, maybe two. But I thought this may be the last time we go. And the last time we went, he was actually really close, like within an inch. We knew that he had not grown an inch in that month, but we were praying, Lord, let these be the thickest shoes <laughs> that he's ever put on. Well, you have the prayer of faith, and then you have man's responsibility And so I went into the the men's restroom, and I got a bunch of paper towels. (laughs) And I folded them and put them under both of his heels in his shoes. And he was tall enough. And as we're walking up, he's so excited. And I said, don't say a word. Which, by the way, is the first reason when you know you've done something wrong. But one of my other sons looked at me and said, Dad, I always thought you were smart, but now I know you're a genius. (laughs) It's funny that Disney has signs to show the size you have to be so that you can ride certain rides. It's also sad that adults in prayer try to measure down while kids will do anything they can do to measure up. When you, when you hear a kid pray and you hear the things they pray for, it, it, the faith that it takes to pray what they pray oftentimes shames me in my prayer life. Because I've been a Christian for so long now that there are times that I pray prayers that I know I can do. When's the last huge, giant, deep, far-reaching prayer? When's the last time you and I have engaged in that type of prayer? prayer? To ask in God for what only he can do. As adults, we try to measure down. We we try not to bother God. You're not bothering the Father in prayer. You're engaging him in a love relationship that he has asked us to partake in. And kids pray these big prayers. Scripture says that we are children of the King. And if we're not praying the type of prayers that only God can do, then our faith needs a checkup. Believing God for the impossible, for all Christ followers, should be the norm, not the exception. The fourth thing we see in this passage is that prayer moves us to mercy. 
It moves us to mercy. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice that it didn't say, as we will be forgiving our debtors. The language points to the idea that we have already forgiven those who have wronged us. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us where we've wronged you, as we have already forgiven those who have wronged us. And see, we don't forgive people just so that we will be forgiven. It's a byproduct of forgiving people out of obedience of what God has asked us to do in the first place. And some of you have been treated in ways that are unimaginable and are wrong and are sinful and are hurtful and have put a deep wound inside your heart. And you can hear a song, you can go to a place, you can smell a smell. You can hear a person's name and immediately inside of you bubbles anger and unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness. And you're mad all over again like what happened just happened. The price of our sin debt that we owe God will forever outweigh anything anyone has ever, is doing, or will ever do to us. If we have been forgiven by the Father who is perfect. And simply put, there's just nothing that we can't forgive someone else for. We can't be right with the Father if we're not right with mankind. Forgive us our debts as we forget the, forgive those who have sinned against us. Fifth thing we see is that prayer strengthens our defense. Look at verse 13, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the phrase actually in the original language is the evil one, speaking of Satan. And I don't want you to read this and think the idea that we pray lead us not into temptation as the Father leads us into temptation if we don't pray this. That, that's, that's, that's poor theology. That's not what this passage is saying. That's not what this verse is trying to point out. It, it, it's, it's an awareness that as Christ followers that we would have the discernment and the understanding and the wisdom to be able to see sin far off. That's one of the things that we pray for our children. It's one of the things I pray for you. It's one of the things that I pray for my neighbors. God, help us to see sin when it's a mile away. But if it creeps up on me, Help me to choose you every time. Help me to not fall in the area of sin that would break my relationship with the Father, at least temporarily, that would bring shame to my wife and my children, that would hurt the bride of Christ. Help me to see it so far off that I'm able to run away from and I'm able to combat it the way that Jesus fought temptation with Scripture. I hope, I hope you're like me in, in this, that I, I don't want to not fall morally or ethically or legally or, or into some sinful behavior, not so that I, don't, I keep my job. I don't want to hurt the body of Christ. I don't want to damage my ability. I don't want you to damage your ability to make an impact on this community with the gospel. 
This morning, um, I, I went to Panera Bread. Garrett and I rode over there uh, after Pastor's Prayer Partners and grabbed a coffee. And we're the only people in the store besides the workers. So we're standing kind of at the pickup window. And the employees are talking. We can't even see anybody, but they're just kind of talking. And I hear one of them say, I, I got to go to church. And I just kind of stuck my head in. I was like, come to church with me. And she stuck her head around the corner. She said, where do you go to church? And I said, Sherwood on Whispering Pines. She said, you're the third person that's invited me. I'm going to come. I said, what's your name? She said, Tequila. I said, well, I want you to sit with my family. She said, all right, I'm going to come. Next time I'm off, I'm going to be there on Sunday. And so if y'all see a young lady sitting down here that you don't recognize in a few weeks, her name's Tequila. Come give her a hug. I don't want us to damage our ability and say, Father, we we need to pray, Father, help me to see sin how you see sin. Help me to not be enticed by it because it is slow. Nobody wakes up one morning and decides they're just going to throw their life away or throw their marriage away or flush their business down the toilet. That's not what we do. It is a slow process that the enemy creeps up on us, and before you know it, he has you. And that's why it's so important to stay clean of sin and close to the Father. That we would pray, Father, help me to see sin far off and deliver me from that. Help me to fight it with everything that's in me. The last thing we see is that prayer brings healing when we pray for one another. Uh, I mentioned that we're going to be end in James chapter 5. I'll read this to you. I think it might be on the screens. If you're in your, writing in your notes, it should be James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I would submit to you, church, that this is one of the least practiced principles in all of Scripture. We don't confess our sins to one another. Why? Because we've got it all together. The last thing that we want each other to know is to to know that we are broken and that there's turmoil in our home or turmoil with our children or we're one paycheck away from losing it all or we're struggling with some type of chemical dependency or, or online addiction. And that's why when people fall, we never see it coming and it happens so fast and it's heartbreaking. Why? Because we try to fight this alone. Scripture says, hey, confess your sins to one another. Now, there's a wise way to do that, and there's an unwise way to do that. But the people that know me best, they know my warts and wrinkles and missteps. and It's a mess, y'all. Without Jesus, we are in an absolute mess mess. It's okay to not be okay. It doesn't mean you're strong if you don't admit that you need help. It actually means that you're weak if you don't admit that you need help if you need help. 
If, if I'm in the middle of, of an ocean and, and there are people around me and I'm drowning, I'm not going to be silent because I don't want to bother them or I don't want them to think that I simply can't swim. I'm going to be yelling my guts out. Why? Because I need help. We need help. Help. And one of the reasons that a lot of people in our community and all these communities don't feel like they can go to church is because we propagate the idea that we have it together when we don't. Jesus loves broken people because that's all he's had to work with. He gets it. Matter of fact, Jesus' harshest words were for the people who were ultra-religious and acted like they had nothing wrong with them. I hope I'm not in that category. I hope you're not in that category. The lifeblood of our church is the person of Christ and the move of the Spirit and God's hand upon it. And one of the reasons that we're so committed to prayer is because we believe that prayer is intimate with the Father. I want to tell you about a couple of opportunities in our prayer ministry and in our church. Some of these you may not even know about. On Sunday nights, we meet in the chapel at 515. We have a prayer sheet that people read over, prayer cards people write. We pray together in teams. Sometimes we'll read scripture together. Sometimes we'll sing together. But it's not just preparing our heart for Sunday night. We're praying for our community. We're praying for our church. We're praying for our nation. We're praying for our leaders. We're praying for missionaries. We're praying for church planners. We're praying for the body of Christ as a global movement. Some of you don't know this, but right outside these doors, if you take a left across from the chapel, this side of the chapel, right underneath this area of the, of the choir loft, there's a door there. And outside there's a little plaque. It says Spurgeon's Prayer Room, Spurgeon's Prayer Closet. There are people in there right now praying for you. There are pe people in there tonight praying for you and praying for me. And people sign up for that. And our deacons, uh, they take turns. Deacon of the week, they'll go in there and they pray. And sometimes it's one person, sometimes it's multiple people. But that Spurgeon's prayer room is occupied when we're in here. And, and Friday night, when we have our men's wild game dinner, wild game event, when Rick's up here preaching, we're going to have a team of people in there praying for the men in this room. The prayer tower out front. This, this, this overpass that you ride under and you see that door there, it's a coded entrance. There's two private prayer rooms that are in there and a desk with multiple prayer requests and a wall of, of missionaries and pastors and church planners and a spiral staircase where you can go and sign up and, and take a group of people and pray. We have pastors' prayer partners that meet in here on Sunday mornings at 745 Primarily men that show up. Some of them bring their children, and we gather around, and uh, Pastor Michael, if he's preaching, he's going to share what's going on and what the days, what we're going to be talking about, ways they can be praying. And if these men, we will move throughout this room and pray together. We'll pray at these altars, pray over the doors and the chairs and, and, and the different sections. Why? Because we believe that God moves on the prayers of his people. We meet in here as a staff every Sunday morning at 7 right here. And we pray. There's a prayer list. Pastors, 200 praying intercessors that you can get on and find out how you can be praying, what's coming up, ways that you can be praying for him, ways that you can be praying for our church. 
We've even got a tool that we've you partnered with an organization and utilized, and some of you are doing an incredible job with that. And some of you just need to re-up and, and refresh that. But we pray for the hundred closest neighbors to us every 20 days. We pray for five neighbors every day, and every 20 days that list refreshes. And that's opened doors for us, especially coming off January 2nd and January 22nd in our community, to know people by name and to know their needs, and it opens doors for gospel conversations. Today as you leave, David and Tasha Milner are going to be at a table right out in the atrium. There's a few things that you can pick up, but if you know you need to be engaged in prayer and take it more seriously to not just be a casual observer, but to be an active participant, a playmaker in the area of prayer. I would prayerfully beg you to consider making this a much more vital part of your walk with Christ. That it's not just something you do, it's who you are. Some of you don't feel comfortable praying because you don't know Christ. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. Here's what I can promise you. Everybody in this room today, last week, and every week, as long as this building stands, either knows Christ or don't. At one time, we did not. Those of us that are Christ followers. And like I said earlier, it's okay to not be okay we don't care if you wore jeans, a t-shirt, or you're wearing a tie around your neck right now. God wants your heart more than he wants your wardrobe. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to pray. And we're going to sing. And we're going to have some of our pastors down front. And if you know that you need to trust Christ as your Savior, you just come down. You don't have to have eloquent words. They'll ask you. They'll pray with you. And we want to find a way that we can pray with you and encourage you in your pursuit of Jesus, the one who pursues you for you. Father, I ask in your name, your incredible name, that, God, you would move on the hearts of your people. That, Father, we would take very seriously the call to prayer and the opportunity that it gives us to be in your presence and to hear from you, not just that you hear from us. So Jesus, if there's anyone here today that knows that they need you like never before, Father, that you would cause them to wave the white flag of surrender in their hearts, that they would put away all pride, and that they would come and, and be prayed with and prayed over. Jesus, we're grateful for who you are and all that you've done. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.